well, how do you get a bunch of Christians to live for more than just themselves? Okay, in some people's minds, Christians are thought of as insular, as self-focused, maybe a little bit self-righteous, holier than thou, looking down their noses at others, not wanting to mix with them. It's a reputation that some Christians have to live with. And you know what? For some, to some degree, it is true. It's true. But it's not how it should be. You know, from the beginning of the Christian movement, the church has been a movement that's been looking outward. It's been a movement that's wanted to bring others in. It's wanted to grow as more and more people have heard about the message of of Jesus and join its community. Now, it's not wanted to grow because it's trying to gain some superpower status, but because it seeks to love the outsider. William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury in the 40s, I think was onto something when he said, the church is the only organisation that does not exist for itself, but for those who live outside of it. Now, the church is called to love its non-members in all sorts of ways, by serving the community, uh, helping those who are vulnerable, uh, working for justice, all that good stuff. But primarily, it loves by sharing a message, a message about Jesus, good news about who he is and what he's done. And it's called to reach to others with this message. And others, not just who are on the other side of the walls of a church or the other side of a Zoom chat, but even people who are on the other side of a country's borders. Well, how does this happen then? How does a bunch of Christians, not, how do they not live for themselves, but seek to live for the sake of other people? How does this pioneering, radical, other-centered multiplication, sometimes called mission, happen? Well, the book of Acts has the answer. Right at the beginning of this book, Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And up to this point in Acts, we've seen how the message of Jesus has spread through Judea, the sort of home country of the disciples, Samaria, the neighboring country. And at this point in the story, we kind of cross a boundary. And for the first time, the message of Jesus is going overseas. The good news is going global. And we see as we read this passage, we've looked at today, what it is that fuels this radical other-centered movement. And we see three things. We see that mission happens by God's command, it happens through God's word, and it happens under God's control. So let's take each of these in turn. It happens by God's command. Now, at the beginning of this section, we are introduced to the church in Antioch. And Antioch is a bit like Redeemer, in some ways. It is a new church, um, a church plant. And it was not based at the kind of HQ of Christianity, um, Jerusalem, but rather it has been started away off from where the core of everything is happening on its northern frontier. And in verse two, we are told that this church plant has received a command by the Holy Spirit to set apart both Barnabas and Saul for mission. 
Now, we don't exactly know how God communicated this because we're not told. It says the Holy Spirit commanded them and they seem to understand the call. But the point is clear. These two men are going to be sent overseas. And as we'll see, to different nations um, to spread the message about Jesus. And so in verse three, it says that they go. The church is obedient. Now, straight away, there are a couple of things to notice here. First of all, notice that God's command for mission while, comes whilst they are doing their spiritual practices, you know, classic Christian disciplines, worship, prayer, fasting. It's during these things that the church learns and obeys God's heart for other people. You know, when some people think of Christians as being holy, they have in their minds an idea of practices that separate them from people who are not Christians. They think that it's stuff just between them and God or very religious things that don't have um, people outside the church in view. But look at this. It's as these guys are doing really Christian stuff, they're praying and they're worshipping, that they see God's desire to reach other people and their hearts are drawn towards others too. And so they send Barnabas and Saul off on their trip. Their worship leads to mission. And notice as well that in order for the church to obey this command, it's going to cost them. It's going to be sacrificial. Do you notice there's a list of leaders in verse one and there's five of them, five people. And Saul and Barnabas are two of those five men. Now, they've only just come back, seemingly, from a previous trip and they're about to be sent off again on another one. Now, Antioch is a growing church and yet two out of five of their leaders are about to be sent off. That's 40 percent of the leadership. And Saul and Barnabas, they're probably the most eminent, the most gifted guys in that leadership team. Now, I don't know how many business gurus would recommend this sort of action, sending your best leaders away. You can imagine Elon Musk kind of shaking his head in disbelief. It doesn't make business sense. And yet the Holy Spirit commands them and they are willing to be sacrificial in order to send these men uh, across to share the message of Jesus with those who haven't heard yet. Well, from one church plant to another, there is a clear lesson for Redeemer here, isn't there? Now, we don't need a mystical experience to know whether God wants us or wants you as Redeemer Church um, to do mission. In fact, we have what the church at Antioch didn't have, which is the complete collection of God's words in the Bible. And in them, Jesus is clear, isn't he? He wants his church to do mission. He wants them to love other people and break boundaries in order to reach them with the message um, of him, the message of the gospel. He says, go make disciples of all nations. God still has that heart for others. And so we should take that seriously, even if we are a church plant. We should be willing to be generous and sacrificial so that we can be missional. Now, I'm not saying that you get Greg and Christina to pack their bags and as soon as lockdown um, is lifted, they get to fly to some other country. But what I'm saying is that mission and outreach should remain a priority for the church, even if the church seems, seems stretched. 
we always need to maintain our focus on others, not just on ourselves. Now, the problem is we may really feel stretched at the moment. Lockdown is taking its toll on all of us, isn't it? Not least the other struggles that come with life, the other burdens that we have to carry. Some of you may be feeling still at a level of strain just from inputting into the church itself. And I guess when a church that's small, perhaps like Redeemer, looks at itself and sees its vulnerability, it could be tempted to say, well, how about we, we kind of just back off mission for a little bit? We can leave that to some of the bigger churches that has more resource. Why don't we kind of just look after ourselves for a little bit, regroup? Now, Antioch could have said the same. After all, they weren't the biggest church in the area. The church in Jerusalem had much more resource than they did. And yet they were still willing to obey God's command and go on mission. Why? Because reaching others, loving others, existing um, for its, non, its non-members was at the heart of its spiritual DNA. It's what God wanted, and it was helping them to live not just for themselves. And so that should be the same for us too. We should be always seeking to exist um, for our non-members. And this happens by God's command. This is what God wants us to do. It's our command. Well, okay, we know how we should reach out to others. Well, because God has told us to do so. And um, we know that we should do that. How, how do we know that we've got the resources to do so effectively? Because it might seem quite scary. Well, secondly, mission happens through God's word. And the rest of this large chapter follows Saul and Barnabas as they go through different areas sharing the message about Jesus. They go to Cyprus. They go to a place called Pisidia Antioch, um, not to be confused with Antioch, where they've just come from. This is a, a place in, in what is modern day Turkey. So they're traveling all over their local region. And as you read in Acts, you can't help but notice how Luke references the word of God or the word of the Lord. It's a phrase that comes up again and again and again. Luke is at pains to show that the power in mission, the ability to reach others, doesn't come from within um, Saul or Barnabas themselves, but the power comes from the message itself. There's inherent power in it. All that is required is that this news about Jesus is shared and stuff happens. The word does the work. Wherever Barnabas and Saul go, Acts puts this emphasis. Look at verse 7. The proconsul wanted to hear the word of God. Verse 12, he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 48, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. If you want to know where the action is in reaching out to others, it is in God's word. Is it in the message about Jesus itself? And what is the content of that message? Well, Saul uh, outlines this in his sermon in verses 16 to 41. And the main highlights are these, that Jesus is the hope of history. He is the Jewish Messiah. He's the one that the people have been looking for, forward to for thousands and thousands of years. He's the hope of their history. But that he was betrayed and crucified. He was killed 
by those who he came um, to reach, although this happened according to prophecy. He was also raised from the dead gloriously, which vindicated him. It showed everyone who he was. And that now everyone everywhere is offered forgiveness. Forgiveness for the ugliness in our hearts that is now open and available because Jesus has risen from the dead. And so there's a call to action. We must turn to him. That's the message. So the core of the message, Jesus is the saviour of the world. He died for our sins and is able to offer forgiveness. And so all people are called to turn to him. This is the word of God. And in itself, it has all the power needed in affecting change and transformation. See, all the drama that happens in this chapter is caused by the word of God. And so the word of God is the hero of the story. Now, that might come as a surprise to us because you might actually think that the hero would be someone else, and that is Saul. You see, this passage of Acts is also all about Saul's rise to prominence as a leader in the church. Now, already through Acts, we've seen how Saul has gone from being an enemy of the church to being a gifted Christian worker. And in fact, Saul would go on to be um, the most influential theologian in church history, second only to Jesus himself. See, Luke is charting um, this change and growth and development in Saul. And this particular passage is a turning point. We see that for the first time he's referred to by his Greek name, Paul. And over the course of the chapter, he seems to take the lead. At the beginning, it's um, Barnabas and Saul. It moves on to being Paul and his companions. The apprentice becomes the master. Now, as Luke seems to be telling Saul's story through Acts, you'd think that he'd want to big him up, be his hype man. And there are uh, reasons to think that that's what happens in, in, the, um, in the passage. So Paul goes to Cyprus. He squares off with a magician who doesn't want his boss to hear the word. Um, Paul rebukes the guy and makes him blind. I mean, Paul literally performs a miracle. It's amazing. But look at verse 12. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed, for he was amazed. What, at the miracle? No, at the teaching about the Lord. The miracle helped, no doubt. But the final factor in this man accepting the message about Jesus was the message. It's the teaching that amazed him. Okay, And the same is true later. When Paul preaches and sees success, Luke doesn't attribute it to Paul. He speaks in the synagogue and the next week it says the place is filled. Verse 44, the whole city gathers to hear. What do they gather to hear, Paul? No, they gather to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 48, Paul's hearers who are non-Jews, they are glad and they honour what? Not Paul. They honour the word of the Lord. And in verse 49, it's not the fame of Paul that spreads through the whole region. It's the word of the Lord that spreads. Okay, Even at the turning point in Paul's development as a leader, he is not the hero. Now, isn't that strange? In any kind of story about a big figure, um, you big up their achievements so that they're the hero. If you think about every Disney film ever, 
Okay, take the Lion King. The Lion King follows Simba's journey. He is exiled out from his own kingdom. Um, and as he grows, he develops, he gains strength and resource and ability to go back to the kingdom and uh, defeat his evil uncle Scar. And by the end of the film, we're like, wow, isn't Simba amazing? Standing ovation. Simba's awesome. And yet here, even though Luke is a friend of Paul's, as he charts this quite monumental stage in his development, Paul is not ultimately the hero. It is the word of the Lord that is the hero. Not even church history's greatest theologian can steal the spotlight from the message about Jesus itself. And that gives us pause for thought because we need to learn something really crucial here. Outreach and mission is not built by force of personality. It happens through the word of God, the message of the gospel. It's the message that has power to draw in hearers, to change lives, even to catalyze a global movement. And I guess for Redeemer, that must be both humbling and encouraging. It's, it's humbling, isn't it? In 10 years time, when the story of Redeemer is retold, those first few years, all the growth, all the hard work, all the impact that it's had on people's lives, who's going to be the hero of the story? Well, it's not going to be Greg or Christina. It's not going to be missional community leaders. It's not going to be the members who are kind of getting stuck in, although many of you have worked super, super hard. But none of you have been the deciding factor in, in any success that Redeemer has. You don't get to have your name put in lights. Any good that comes from Redeemer has been ultimately because Jesus has worked using his powerful word. Now it's humbling. It's also encouraging because it means that in the Bible, in the message about Jesus, you have all you need to reach out to others and to love them and to give them life-giving news. You have all you need. You don't need to be a captivating speaker. You don't need to have loads of charisma. You don't need to be super socially able or really impressive at all. The key ingredient is the message itself about Jesus. And you have that in the Bible. You if you share the message of Jesus with others, he is able to change the world with it. And so this too will help Christians not just live for themselves, knowing that they have all they need in the message to be able to reach out to others. And for those of you who are watching and listening in and are not actually that familiar with the message of Jesus, you don't actually truly understand why, why he came, who he is, what that means for life, I would encourage you, dig in deeper. We believe that this is a message that is transformative. The power isn't in um, the particular members of Redeemer uh, or in people who speak up front like I'm doing at the moment. The message is actually... The power is in the message itself. So press in to find out more. This is life-changing stuff. This is offering new life. This is offering, well, the greatest news we could ever hear. Mission happens through the word of God. And then finally, mission happens under God's control. So back to the story. Well, with God's command, with God's word, 
And when you've got two Christian rock stars on the team, you'd think that this mission trip would have all it needed for a smooth operation and a clinical finish. You can imagine the plan, can't you? Let's go, let's share the message. Everyone will love it. Everyone comes to Jesus, job done, let's go to the pub. But that is not quite what happens. In fact, by the end of this passage, we find that Paul and Barnabas have alienated a large group of their target audience, and they end up getting run out of town. Not the best PR. It's not successful uh, by many people's standards. And yet, despite significant trouble, God shows himself to be in control. Let's see how that happens. Well, Paul and Barnabas' custom when they come to a town is to share their message with the Jewish people first before they go to Gentiles or or non-Jewish people. Now, we've seen that Jesus is for everyone, Jews and Gentiles, but there's a theological principle here. Uh, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah promised to the Jewish people, so it makes sense that they should get to hear about the message first. So when Paul and Barnabas, they come to Pisidian Antioch, they go to the synagogue and Paul gets to share um, his sermon. Now, there are Gentiles present. It says, verse 26, they're referred to as God-fearers. But the majority of his hearers are Jewish. Now, that initial sermon seems to go down pretty well, particularly among the Gentiles that are there. And this is probably because of verse 39, because Paul says that Jesus is for everyone who believes. And he suggests that you don't have to keep the law of Moses, that is, you don't have to become Jewish in order to be part um, of the people of God, to get in on the deal. In fact, Jesus offers a salvation that rule keeping can't offer you. Well, by the time Paul and Barnabas come back the next week for more teaching, just look at verse 44, the place is rammed. Clearly the word has spread. And loads of other Gentiles have come to see what all this fuss is about. If you look at verse 45, it says the Jewish people there are not happy. Now, no doubt this is partly because their synagogue has been kind of overrun by a load of outsider Gentiles. But it says they're jealous. And perhaps this is part, um, in part, due to the nature of Paul's message. So the idea that unclean Gentiles could be included in God's people, this was a barrier for the people at the time, the Jewish people. And so even though this message is first intended for them, verse 45, these particular Jewish people in this place, they reject it and they heap abuse on Paul and Barnabas. Now, isn't that a tragedy? Of of all people, these people should have been the ones to accept the message. After all, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Now, there are some Jewish people who believe it says so, verse 43. But it seems that overall, and particularly from the perspective of the leadership, um, the message is rejected. And this must have been heartbreaking for Paul and Barnabas, Jewish themselves. This is not the success they dreamed of. But look at what happens. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject him, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The rejection of the message by some 
means that Paul and Barnabas can tell others. And look at the results, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Do you notice God took what looked like absolute failure and he still used it to bring salvation to people? Verse 48, isn't that a remarkable statement about God's control? All who were appointed for eternal life believed. God was in control. He knew who was going to accept the message. And no amount of opposition, no amount of rejection was going to get in the way of that. He was still going to fulfill his purposes. In fact, the opposition led to the acceptance of the message by others. So we have this crazy situation where even though there's hostility to Paul and Barnabas, people believe, and it says the message spreads through the whole region. And this gets ramped up afterwards. Some of the Jewish people uh, know others in political power and they get Paul and Barnabas kicked out of the region. It's pretty extreme. And yet God is still in control. The final word of the passage is in verse 52. Look at that. The new Christians were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible? These brand new Christians had just witnessed state-sponsored persecution of Paul and Barnabas, the guys who would teach them, taught them. And they now knew that their home region was going to be hostile to this very faith that they're now professing. And yet, even so, they grew spiritually. They were joyful. God was working in their hearts, transforming them. Do you see how God's control is so important and a much bigger principle even than opposition? Opposition doesn't mean failure in these circumstances when God is in control. It's not the end of the story. God is bigger than opposition. And you know what? As people seek to love other people by sharing the good news about Jesus today, there are countless of ex examples of how God is using um, opposition or working despite it to fulfill his purposes. So Marcus Honeysett, he's a Christian leader who spent years working for the Christian Union movement in universities. And he tells a story about when he once went to an event um, to share about who Jesus is. And there was a guy there who was incredibly hostile, really antagonistic. He was upset with the things that Mark was saying. He was pushing back, bringing lots of arguments. He thought that um, the message of Christianity was stupid. Um, it was very, very hostile. And Marcus did his best to kind of answer the grilling and, and, and kind of come up with uh, responses to his questions. But overall, it was very exhausting and quite discouraging for Marcus because it seemed like he didn't get anywhere with this guy. But a year or two later, he came back to the Christian Union and saw this guy again. And in, in that time, he had become a Christian. He'd become a Christian. And it turned out that even though he was really hostile in those conversations, it was kind of a bit of a defense mechanism. And actually, he was taking seriously the things that Marcus had been saying. And further down the line, he chose to um, follow Jesus. That's just one example of so many where God is able to use opposition for his purposes. And the opposition is not the end of the story when we go out in mission. 
And that's so important for us to grasp, isn't it? Because opposition is inevitable. You know, we follow um, Jesus who was crucified. If Paul and Barnabas could face opposition for sharing the message, then so will we. But we're going to deal with that a lot better if we know that God is in control despite any opposition we face. Too often when we think about our attempts to share Jesus with others, we let opposition have the final word. We let it be the end of the story. We say things like, well, my faith came up in conversation at work, but when I told them what I believed, it kind of just ended the conversation and my colleagues kind of laughed at me. Full stop. End of story. Or I once tried to talk to a friend about Jesus, uh, but it didn't, got, it didn't go well. They got really upset with me. And since then, they've kind of avoided me. Full stop. We think that that's the end. But if mission happens under God's control, perhaps we finish those sentences a little too early. Perhaps opposition is not the end of the story. Perhaps we've got to put a full stop where there should actually be a comma where we leave space for God to work, because who knows? Maybe one day um, that person who is hostile will be open. Maybe a closed conversation now will actually lead to an open conversation later. Or perhaps like in Acts, someone's rejection might lead to someone else's acceptance. Who knows? Who knows? But either way, God is in control. And through the church's mission, people will come to know Jesus. And all those appointed to eternal life will believe. And opposition can't stop that any more than a spider's web can stop a falling boulder. So don't lose heart as you reach out in mission. It happens under God's control. Well, just as we finish, the Christian church is one of the most diverse movements in history. It's often associated as a white Westerners religion, although it was birthed in the Middle East by first century Jews. And in fact, today, the world's average Christian is a woman of colour in somewhere like Africa. Okay, diversity is at the heart of the Christian faith. And that's a glorious thing. That's something we should be proud of. But it got that way because churches like Antioch didn't exist just for themselves but they reached out to others. They took up the call to do their part in mission. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, they took the message of Jesus to those outside their community. And this is our call too. This is our call. Christians are not just to live for themselves. We're to reach out in mission. You know what? We can do that, not just, that we, not just because we know that God has commanded us, but we know we can do that when we know that we have all we need in God's word and that even in any opposition we face, um, it happens under his control. So let's not lose heart as we seek to reach others.